welcome to episode 327 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We are back from vacation, rested and ready. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and the views we're going to express uh, would shock most of our uh, uh, fellow uh, uh, clients, members of the firm, family members, uh, uh, and so uh, you cannot blame them for our views. Uh, joining me today in the News Roundup, uh, Nick Weaver, Senior Researcher and Lecturer in Computer Science at UC Berkeley, David Chris, founder of Culper Partners, uh, with a couple of decades of uh, experience in intelligence and law enforcement and security. And Dave Itell, who's the founder of the Itell Foundation, uh, an information security specialist and author. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, we're going to try to pick up a few of the stories from August that obviously uh, developed while we were on uh, hiatus. Uh, and picking among them, I got to say, I think still the most important one is the WeChat and TikTok uh, a story. Uh, um, the president has announced in an executive order that he's going to ban them in 45 days from, uh, uh, well, in about uh, two weeks. Uh, um, and uh, that uh, um, order has provoked an in a, a big set of stories about TikTok and almost complete silence about WeChat. Uh, uh, and the most recent development, uh, um, apart from Microsoft taking what looks like a lead in buying the U.S. and maybe the Five Eyes business of uh, uh, TikTok, uh, is that the Chinese government has said, wait a minute, you can't export those algorithms that make the uh, uh, TikTok content so compelling because they're subject to export controls uh, and they're artificial intelligence and we might not let you do it. So it's not clear who's going to kill TikTok, but it's starting to look as though getting this deal done is going to be kind of tricky. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of background. Uh, Nick, do, do you want to take us a little further? Yes. So part of the problem, I think, is lack of communication. So WeChat in particular has a very serious problem. It's Bill Barr style of encryption. That is, it isn't. That the communications are encrypted to WeChat server, but at the server, they're in the clear. And so we know that WeChat practices very heavy censorship and we can naturally assume that WeChat uh, wiretaps on behalf of the Chinese government. So there are serious security risks. But at the same time, if you want to communicate with somebody in China, it's the only option because any messenger service that started to be widespread in China would have that requirement. So it's... It's so a I real this, security issue. This doesn't strike me as all that hard. Um, it, it, making two messenger services interoperate is a piece of cake. You could, you could, Facebook could acquire the U.S. Uh, uh, business of WeChat and make its its Facebook Messenger interact with WeChat. Sure, it would be subject to being tapped in China. We're never going to solve that problem. Uh, uh, but 
in terms of actually being able to force the um, di uh, divestment of WeChat's business in the U.S., couldn't we find a way to provide those services in the U.S. through a company that wouldn't um, intercept them unless they went to China? I'm always wary. Yeah, that's called Zoom. <laughs> well, I think it's it's dangerous to also assume that that doing something in an engineering fashion is easier before you actually have it done. So I, I'm very aware of that. And I think it's also important to recognize that WeChat is not just a chat program. This is a life program. This is how your identity is coordinated, how you transfer money, how you organize events, and how you do almost anything in China. And it's almost as if, say, Google had become an element of the Chinese state, right? Or of the American state in, in Google's case. That's how integrated it is to Chinese society, which is why it has such far reach within the expat community of Chinese living overseas and why some of them don't even realize how much other content is available and how to communicate with other systems. So I think, I don't know that it would be possible to divest WeChat. I think we will end up just blocking it. And I think it's important to recognize that Tencent is so powerful, is such a big danger in some senses. It's such an element of Chinese cyber power and projection that they own things we don't even realize they own. It's it's not recognized that they own most video game companies, including those that are most popular here in the United States. And so one of the worries that I have with these two, I think, quite realistic bans that the Trump administration is doing is that we don't have any real policy to back them up with. So we can't say, oh, what we're really worried about is the data you're collecting or your ability to censor or you know, your ability to actually inject malicious code onto any phone that has WeChat on it. We, we can't say what our underlying policy is and make it work for other countries and other things. So I think that's one of the big issues that we're still coming to grips with on the WeChat thing is this is much bigger than just WeChat. And it's much bigger than just TikTok yeah, and Sarah I, Cooper. I, I kind of com completely agree with you on that, that WeChat is, uh, on the one hand, pretty scary in terms of you've got uh, people who are native Chinese speakers in the United States. They may even be LPRs or, or U.S. citizens, but because they are principally operating in Chinese, they're using WeChat to talk to their um uh, family in China, and they're getting all their news there. And uh, all the news they're getting is designed to keep the People's Republic of China happy. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a pretty scary propaganda outlet. Uh, I do nonetheless think that if we're going to solve the problem, we shouldn't just say you can't do it in the United States because that just cuts a bunch of people off and will lead to them finding a way to use WeChat anyway. Um, and it, we'd be better off trying to get some of Silicon Valley to find a way to duplicate those services and then tell WeChat, you have to build an API that will enable those services to convey in some fashion uh, to the U.S. Uh, uh, keeper of the business. 
I mean, Not sure. 45 days wouldn't even get you an initial scoping of that problem, I don't think. That's that's I th- I agree with you, which is why I suspect that we are going to see something modest from the Commerce Department about WeChat. They they're supposed to be writing the rules for exactly what they're going to do with WeChat, and my bet is that we're going to see them say, "Well, we're doing this for now and we've got other things that we want to do later." That's my guess. Also, I would bet that uh, especially TikTok strategy is tied up in court into January 20th and hope there's a uh, sane president. Yeah, because... I've, read that. I've read that complaint. I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, tie the, uh, uh, the administration up for 20 minutes. Uh, it's not that it's I think crazy. it is because yeah. the problem is, is Trump has said the quiet part out loud. He wants a cut to the U.S. Treasury. He... That's just lunatic extortion, and it, it is it is crazy. Uh, I, and my guess is um, he will say uh, at the end of the day they will say TikTok doesn't have to pay him pay anything to the U.S. government, but Microsoft, out of the goodness of its heart, is going to endow something or other, uh, and and so. Uh, it, it will make him happy. It will make uh, uh, TikTok won't be able to claim that it was forced to pay stuff. Uh, so my guess is you can you can walk past that. I also think the courts sooner or later they have to just stop saying, well, um, unlike every president we've ever seen before, this one actually says what he thinks, and therefore we have to treat him very differently. I just don't think that uh, strategy. Uh, uh, flies in the long haul. Uh, uh, David, I yes. disagree. And so, Stuart, uh, that's the bucks. real difference, huh? Between Trump and other presidents, is he actually says what he thinks, yes. um, and they all had these same thoughts, but just didn't say them out loud, huh? I'm, I'm, I'm. Well, yeah, I, I'm pretty confident that, say, Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, <laughs> said, thought a whole bunch of things that he never said, uh, yeah. and uh, and Richard and Nixon, Richard Nixon uh, except when he was uh, being he said them. <laughs> you know, I, uh, this uh, he is uniquely unfiltered. Uh, I and a lot of the standards that were developed were developed by courts who said, "Yeah, maybe it's maybe there's something bad here, but we're not going to um, uh, mount Rosinante and go looking for bad thoughts in the executive branch." Now, of course, they're having their noses rubbed in it, but I think uh, even then, the the high water mark for saying, well, Trace, Trump is a racist, so uh, nothing he does is untainted by racism, and therefore it's all illegal. That uh, the high water mark for that was ten days after he took office. But I think, except the, that the export control stuff is worth looking at a little bit as well, because the Chinese are basically mirroring mirroring American policy with export control now. And that may have some pretty broad impacts going forward, even though I think in TikTok's case, it's not truly going to be a, a any kind of barrier to a deal getting done. It's, But it's certainly worth looking at what they're doing on terms of AI and other foundational technologies as they try to block the export of that technology overseas. I, I also, think that's right. Yeah, go ahead. Also, if you look at uh, the recent Supreme Court decisions – uh, there's a lot less deference to the administration because Trump is being brutally honest, and that will be sufficient to delay till January. Um, okay, I, I you, have fifty you, bucks that says it will be delayed past January 
in the courts, uh, loser pays to lawfare. You up for it? I'm up for it. Uh, David, Chris, uh, I think you were a founder of Lawfare. Maybe you have a, 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 an interest in this. Uh, the I am, uh, I am not a founder, but I am on the board of directors of Lawfare, and I'm happy to serve as a witness to this bet, and uh, I'll take a personal check, which I promise you will be transmitted to Lawfare <laughs> in due course. It's a deal. It's a deal. Uh, just okay. kidding, guys. Uh, so I, I, on on January 20th or earlier, uh, we, there will be a reckoning and, and we'll do it on the air. Right? Uh, thanks uh, uh, for that. Uh, um, let's move on to uh, I'll take hacking Tesla for $1 million, Alex. Uh, <laughs> I, Dave, uh, um, this was a kind of an interesting story in part because it suggests that the Russians actually need uh, close access for some of the, the hacks that they're trying to pull off. Well, let's be let's be fair. It suggests that what appears to be a small Russian mafia group wanted to get close access for several attacks, some of which have already occurred and worked fine, and one of which got caught because the person who they used as an insider turned them into the FBI, and they were not able to escape in time. Although the fact that they were trying to escape and simply got caught in L.A. airport is very interesting. And there's so many amazing aspects to this story. First of all, kudos to the FBI for handling this extremely well, extremely professionally. But And, and we should say this was, a, this was an attempt to get into Tesla's systems, right? Yes. And what they were doing, apparently, is there's a tiny ring of mafiosos who were – uh, hiring insiders to load malware onto a system. They said they'd paid a quarter million dollars for this undetectable piece of malware. They would coordinate a DDoS attack while the malware like siphoned off important documents and files. And then using that information, they would blackmail and extort the company and get somewhere between four to six million dollars at a, at a time. And once they'd this was not the first time they had done this. And it was very interesting. You can read the whole indictment, how this all got set up. They sent a professional, essentially, uh, recruiter to meet with a Tesla employee. He took him out for drinks several times. He he engaged with him, negotiated. Luckily, the FBI was notified very early on and was able to do covert access onto all the meetings and get a lot of evidence uh, but this was one of those things that could have gone seriously wrong for Tesla, has gone wrong for other companies in the past, because as they point out in the indictment, they have been very successful at getting similar sums previously. This was a business model that they were just conducting. And so and they told it, they, they told this guy, um, don't worry, they'll never catch you. Uh, we did one of these companies three and a half years ago, and the guy who helped us get in is still working for them. And I think the FBI is that guy should be very, very nervous right now. Whoever that was, <laughs> very nervous. And it is not worth the money, as he's about to find out, or she, you know, a gender neutral insider. Uh, yep. But you know, there's so much in this story for companies, and even as a national strategy to learn, like the pricing of a million dollars. They didn't really blink at that too much. They're like, We're, we'll pay you a million dollars for installing a file on your computer, and I don't think that is within most companies' threat models, if I had to guess. 
Yeah, because uh, lots of people have uh, uh, open USB uh, uh, slots, and uh, uh, they're not all happy, and they're not all willing to say, no, a million dollars, I wouldn't sell my uh, integrity for that. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is kind of a worry. Uh, the only good news is um, they have to deliver the uh, USB uh, 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 device. Uh, now they could mail it, I suppose. Uh, well, he uh, said you could get the Trojan an email too. So they're they have oh, yeah, pretty okay. good capability. So they were, you know, if you read the indictment, they have a lot of stuff in there. It's an easy read and uh, should scare anybody involved in information security. You know, I have to say, just thinking about this from the bureau's point of view, prior to seeing something like this. You know, had they sent an undercover agent to offer somebody a million dollars to install an unspecified file on a network, there would have been almost surely a successful defense for entrapment uh, because that's such a ridiculous amount of money to offer somebody. I guess now the undercover guys are going to feel a lot more freedom of action to uh, keep up with inflation. And (laughs) they could they could probably get, you know, hundreds of people. I mean, you know. To do this, I mean, it, it, you know, the old the old paradigm example of like, would you double park for a million dollars? Every single person would do it, and that's why you know there's a rule against that kind of investigative tactic. I mean, here, if they really started offering a million dollars through undercover agents to every tech employee, I think you'd have a lot of takers, as you were saying. Well, you I think just has implications bot, you could for do a bot on LinkedIn that just goes around making that offer. <laughs> you could. And I mean, see, I think that's just the carrot. Back. You have to also worry about the Russian mafia having a stick. Like yeah. they may not just be offering people money. They may be threatening people. And that's yeah. Yeah. even scarier. All right. Um, well, let's. I, I I don't know that it's happier, but uh, uh, let's talk a little <laughs> law uh, uh, from the Ninth Circuit. Uh, uh, David, Chris, uh uh, lots of stories about how the Ninth Circuit said that uh, uh, the um, uh, 215 data collection um, uh, program uh, violated the law. It took them a very long time to arrive at that uh, uh, conclusion. And at the end of the day, it was easy for them to say because it actually didn't have any impact on the case at all, as, as I read it. Yeah, they they did conclude that it violated the, the bulk to telephony metadata program violated FISA, but they stopped just short of concluding that it violated the Fourth Amendment. Um, it's a complicated and, and I think very interesting decision and an important decision. Um, and so it's maybe worth just stepping through it a little bit to see what the court did and didn't do here. This is a prosecution for material support of terrorism and money laundering in which the evidence at trial relies heavily on traditional FISA electronic surveillance of the defendants. Uh, They're picked up talking and and emailing and so forth. Um, And the trial ended in February 2013 when the jury returned a guilty verdict. Four months later, as we all recall with varying degrees of trauma, in June of 2013, Fast Eddie Snowden disclosed the NSA bulk telephony metadata program under FISA's business records provision. And later that same month, the government testified publicly that that program had thrown off a tip to the FBI about contact between a San Diego number and a a known bad guy number overseas. Um, And that San Diego number, I think, turned out to be the defendant's number, which caused the FBI to reopen 
its investigation and do a whole lot of detective work, which ultimately led to the FISA and then to the uh, indictment and trial. Um, so on appeal, as I said, the Ninth Circuit stopped just short of holding that the NSA metadata program was unconstitutional. They basically said that it was. Uh, if you're a law nerd, they used Carpenter to distinguish Smith versus Maryland and said, you know, it may be the case that a single pen trap collection of telephony metadata is not a Fourth Amendment event at all. But if you're collecting essentially all the telephony metadata through business records, that's different. And again, they relied on, on the Supreme Court's Carpenter case about cell site location data and the perils of 21st century technology to reach that near conclusion. But at the very last moment, at about the one yard line of concluding that the program was unconstitutional, they said, it doesn't matter. And we're not actually going to rule because even if the NSA metadata program were unconstitutional, it doesn't have a downstream taint on this conviction because it doesn't infect the later FISA collection and the evidence used at trial. Um, <clears throat> so that's just, a, as far as I can tell, a, a fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine familiar to every first year law student and those who have survived the first year of law school in which, you know, if you have an upstream violation, uh, as it were, of uh, the Constitution, it doesn't mean that every single thing that follows thereafter is also infected with unconstitutionality. Uh, there's various ways in which the taint can attenuate over time. And that appears to be what the court uh, concluded, although, of course, I don't have access to the classified record. And the court made some you know, statements about the classified record that are a little ambiguous. Um, but the yeah, greater the distance. Of, the implication was they would have got there anyway. They had plenty of probable cause without this. Uh, um, and of course, uh, the, um, uh, the, the suggestion in, the, in a lot of the stories is, well, that must mean the FBI was lying when it said that this was really important in, the, uh, in finding these guys, which I think is, is not a fair reading of this. Uh, um, it, it could be that this was really important in catching these guys, but that they already had enough if they had uh, thought about it to go after them. Uh, uh, this was just not the but for uh, 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 probable cause that they needed. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is the court ruling it means almost nothing. They're relying on a statute that's already been superseded. Uh, so they're saying you violated a law that hasn't been on the books for, well, for years uh, since we've waited seven years to tell you. Uh, and uh, uh, the you know, the dicta about the Fourth Amendment, I, I thought, they, you know, understandable to say Carpenter sounds to us more plausible than Smith. But they didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about the national security interest uh, that might justify keeping uh, uh, Smith alive for this kind of uh, uh, of collection. So yes, I, which I, Carpenter itself, you know, recognized at the end of the chief justice's yeah. majority opinion saying, you know, we're not ruling for national security cases. So there's much more to be said. Many law professors still can get tenure on the back <laughs> of Carpenter and Smith and this opinion, too. So guys get to work. Um, you know, the, the other thing I do want to just drop a note on this opinion on, which I think may have the attention of the government, it would have my attention if I were in government, is the court says that 
even if you're doing 12 triple three surveillance, now this is surveillance outside of FISA altogether. It's the kind of overseas stuff that Stuart used to approve when he was general counsel at NSA. Um, even if you're doing that kind of non-statutorily regulated surveillance, there is under the constitution, the court seems to say, a notice requirement for evidence obtained or derived from that that gets used in a proceeding. I think uh, that would be perceived by the government as a non-trivial change <clears throat> in its requirements. And I wonder what they're planning to do, if anything, about it. But it's, it's definitely another aspect of this opinion that I noted. Yeah. Well, but on the other hand, on the, the good side from national security, uh, uh, they said, well, there's no ability to uh, suppress the evidence. So you kind of wonder uh, what, the, what the payoff is for the uh, uh, defendant in raising it all. Yeah, it's, um, the, so this, this opinion is very interesting. It's worth a careful read. Um, it's got a lot in it, not a lot that necessarily matters for reasons you've stated, but it is a very interesting sort of experiment in judicial opinion making. It might so be worth other, mentioning as other, well. Yep. There were a lot of people who were, after this, calling for a pardon for Snowden again, and especially like Republican congressional figures, oh, yeah, which I thought was cause, very cause weird. They, 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 they mentioned him uh, favorably, but hell, they quoted me favorably. Uh, do I get a pardon too? Uh, <laughs> Stuart, you get a prospective pardon <laughs> for everything. Uh, I may yeah. need it yet. I may need it yet well, when I the war crimes trial start. <laughs> The, the pardon thing on Snowden is really just a, a, I think, an example of how weird our politics of surveillance are these days and the politics of intelligence with the president having, you know, a Republican president having a very uh, fraught relationship with intelligence agencies generally, beginning with that, you know, speech he gave at the CIA, uh, talking about the the size of his inauguration crowd and yeah. going through all his troubles with the, the federal BI. Uh, and so the idea that the Republican party would lean towards pardoning Edward Snowden and the Democrats would be up on their hind legs, opposing it uh, in, in keeping with the, you know, rank and file in the IC, I just think is a, a sign of the times. It's yep. Strange yeah. times yeah. we live in. So I am a Republican and I'm opposed to it uh, for what that's worth. I, um, <laughs> a, and I, I actually have written uh, because I think that uh, uh, one of the problems with the getting FISA reauthorized, because here we are still not reauthorized and uh, it's been uh, uh, six months or, or more, um, is that uh, uh, when people start thinking about voting for uh, a FISA reauthorization with reform, the reform stuff all leans left. And so if you're a Republican, there's almost nothing in it. You're, uh, you've got the president complaining about FISA and you're being asked to sign on to sort of soft lefty uh, nostrums about uh, how to fix well, FISA. Yeah, I mean, that's the weird thing about the, the three provisions that sunset back in March. You know, there was a House bill that, as you know, Bill Barr, as well as Jerry Nadler uh, and Jim Jordan all endorsed. And that looked like the bipartisan solution to restore those authorities 
um, and add a few, you know, civil liberties protecting elements that, by the way, were desired by both Republicans and Democrats. And then the Senate bill was passed, which had way more or I don't know, substantially more restrictions. DOJ balked and said, no, thank you. And they seem to have spun up the president to threaten a veto, which he did, but not on the grounds that the Senate bill had too many restrictions, but rather on the grounds that it had too few and empowered the deep state to do its nefarious intelligence collecting on Trump Tower. And that's when the wheels really fell off the wagon and the whole thing just blew up. Because as you say, nobody you know, sort of nobody knew which team they were on or, or which direction their team was supposed to be going. Either the Senate bill was too restrictive or it was not restrictive enough, but in any event, it wasn't satisfactory. And so everybody, I think, just more or less threw up their hands. We need a savior, someone who can come up with a third way uh, to chart a light uh, through the darkness. And bring Thank us home. you. Thank you, David Chris. That that, that <laughs> I I have made that effort. Uh, it's uh, going up on Lawfare today uh, uh, and it's going in as uh, testimony to the P Club, uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, essentially saying, you know, usually you write reforms to deal with abuses. We had all of this stuff that happened in 2016 and 2017 involving the Trump campaign. Half the country is is sure there was a conspiracy, uh, and the other half thinks it's a conspiracy theory. Uh, but let's take a look at whether there is at least an appearance of abuse in some of the ways that the Obama administration handled their national security authorities. And I identify several things that a reasonable person would say, yeah, that really should never happen again. Um, And so I'm hoping to put together a reform package that people who are aggrieved by the uh, investigation of Trump, or at least the way it played out, um, can actually read and say, yeah, we should fix that. And that's a reason for voting for FISA reauthorization. So uh, I, I look forward to vitriolic feedback on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) If there's one thing that my experience teaches uh, in the realm of FISA issues these days, it is that you can expect vitriolic feedback pretty much no matter what. But um, I hope you are successful, uh, Stuart, in, in helping us through this difficult period. Let's, I'll look let's forward see. to your piece. <laughs> All right. Uh, and, and last FISA item, I, I think there's not much here. The FISA court issued like an 80-something page uh, uh, opinion reviewing the 702 procedures for protecting U.S. Uh, citizen data. Uh, and um, they mostly said, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. That sounds right. That's fine. Uh, since the standard is, does it violate, uh, I think, the statute or the uh, uh, the Fourth Amendment? It's kind of hard to imagine the court saying, no, you can't do that. But they did get grumpy about the failure, particularly of the FBI, to, to adopt mechanisms for ensuring that it was actually living up to the procedures it had announced. Is that a fair yeah, summary? A fair yeah, there's a lot of um, content in this opinion. There's a lot of redactions. Um, they go through a few general legal issues, this being the Trump administration, for example. They had to ask where the DNI was really the DNI. Um, and indeed, he, he was. This was Admiral McGuire. Um, and then you're right on the FISA, on the FBI and sort of compliance side, they had many pages devoted to 
basically proving out the old adage that everybody knows that the FBI's slogan in this area is yesterday's technology tomorrow. And they just cannot seem to implement the querying requirements properly. Uh, They had, for example, a hundred character preview of query results, even though they're not supposed to see those results without documenting or in some cases getting a court order. Um, it, it, you know, they had taken a ludicrous legal position in my view the year before and lost badly in both the FISA court and the court of review. And they were implementing new requirements in keeping with the court's directives. They just didn't do it right. Um, and I'm not trivializing it. Um, but you know, they just, if you look hard at this, it just looks like they cannot get their technical systems to work and they probably ought to hire Dave and Nick to come in there and clean things up. Guys, it's, it's, I would charge a lot. The FBI has always had a, had this problem. Uh, part yeah. of the problem used yeah. to be that they, they didn't want to be able to search across a bunch of their files because that might create an obligation to search across a bunch of their files and, and have people dipping into cases they didn't know anything about and having to answer questions about them. So it was, it was, it was a tricky thing, but now they're caught betwixt and between. They have systems, they're pretty broadly effective, and they don't do what needs to be done uh, and that makes them look bad next to NSA, which lives for this kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, they also had some human training issues too. um, But I, I, I do, it feels a lot like just a technical implementation challenge. It doesn't look to me like bad faith or sort of, you know, there's no corrupt intent here, but there are some improper queries to vet sources or even vet police candidates or visitors to headquarters and stuff like that. You know, again, it's not like the kind of Nixonian or whatever stuff that you might expect uh, or worry about at the really high end of things, but it is it is more than a little sloppy. Um, and I can see why the court is frustrated that they just, you know, can't seem to shoot straight. All right. Well, let's let's try to move along a little. Uh, David, I'm going to give you two stories. Tell me what's surprising about them, uh, 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 Dave Vitel. Uh, uh, Iranian hackers are selling access to compromised companies, uh, uh, and uh, the U.S. government has uh, exposed a bunch of North Korean uh, uh, ATM cash-out campaigns. Uh, and I guess I'll, I'll add in... The last, uh, uh, and I'm not sure I told you I was going to do this. Yes, I did. Uh, I'll ask Nick to th- throw something in on this. Um, the Justice Department is seizing 280 cryptocurrency accounts, uh, which probably had some North Korean taint as well. Uh, so uh, this is sort of you know current uh, uh, methodology among the people who are hacking us. Uh, uh, start with Dave Itell. Anything surprising in there? I mean, I think what is surprising is sometimes that we are surprised in the sense that the United States and especially our cyber policy community often assumes there's a particular set of cyber norms. And then we go out into the real wild world and just just get our pants handed to us. And one of the one of the areas here is that economic espionage and in particular directly profiting off of state hacking is is just it's the new hottest ice cream flavor and it's very hot out these days so what you yep. saw if you were in vulnerability management for the past year was every major vpn and sort of 
enter point of the network got hacked and big vulnerabilities came out. So Pulse Secure, Fortinet, Palo Alto, Citrix, F5, all these things are huge. They're installed on big networks. They control lots of important data. And when the exploits came out, uh, you know, the, the Iranians who, according to Belfer, are, you know, not a humongous uh, cyber power, but still have some decent uh, aspect to them. Uh, they've been hitting these things night and day for national security regions. And the ones that they don't find interesting espionage purposes for, they have been leveraging in terms of making just money off it, you know, doing uh, standard monetization that the Russians and and any mafia group would find pretty recognizable, just selling access to the networks. You know, pretty soon you got ransomware on something. So that's, I think it's fascinating how nation states are monetizing their offensive capabilities directly. That is, it's not completely new, but it's, it's something we need to start to realize is part of the national scene. And, uh, yeah, the we've got the Iranians, with the Iranians and the North Koreans. So the North Koreans started it. The Iranians are doing it. The, the Russians have always had a, a kind of uh, uh, double-breasted uh, uh, set of hackers. Uh, and the Chinese used to. I don't know that they're doing that quite as much anymore. The, uh, it looked to me as though she was trying to get more of a handle on who was hacking whom. And that may have... Uh, reduced the market for private sector use of government hacking capabilities. I think you're you're probably right. It's very hard to know explicitly how much is coming out of China. Uh, you know, one of my old friends said that like half of the you know hackers reported as being from China were in fact from somewhere he knew was not China, just using Chinese resources to do everything. So. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these things, it's hard to sort of label into a country, but in some of these cases, we know at least the activity is is happening from particular groups that are what we like to call as state-sponsored. And so that, to me, is just one of those things where, you know, everyone likes to think, oh, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a target of an APT or a state-sponsored hacker, but, but you might be, and the, what it might look like is ransomware, which I think is very weird. Yeah, ransomware is going to be everywhere because why not, right? Uh, right. Plus, plus the doxing threat. Uh, there's a there's a whole playbook now for for monetizing your access. Uh, exactly. It's going to be ugly for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Nick, uh, uh, the uh, Justice Department going after and trying to forfeit a bunch of cryptocurrency accounts. Uh, um, it, that's a new tactic, if I remember right, but uh, it's not clear they're going to get any money, is it? Right, because we don't know where the cryptocurrencies ended up in terms of exchanges. That I think this may be laying the groundwork for basically forcing the major cryptocurrency exchanges to taint bad coins, basically break fungibility. Um mm-hmm. We'll see if that works long term. Um, it is a interesting picture into the money laundering side that goes on in the cryptocurrency space, including jumping between cryptocurrencies. Um, also, how much interest the North Koreans have in what we colloquially call shit coins in terms of theft targets. 
Yeah. Well, so I part of part of what's going on here, I suspect, is that the countries that have been subjected to the most severe uh, U.S. sanctions are having a lot of trouble using banking systems, and so they have to get uh, Bitcoin literate. Uh, would that be bitterate? Uh, in a hurry. Uh, and then once they've done that, they say, hey, these guys have no idea how to secure their, 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 their Bitcoin. We should be stealing that. It's easier than stealing data from uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies. I think it's rather the opposite. It's that cryptocurrency is so easy to steal that let's just steal it. And then the problem is actually not the theft of the cryptocurrency, but the cash out. And this is yes. all tied to cryptocurrency thefts and it's all cash out. So would you yeah. call this defend forward? Is 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 that the activity that we're taking now? I'm not even sure I would call it defend forward, uh, uh, at least not in cyberspace. It is it is an effort to to take the profit out of some of the hacks, but I'd say it's incomplete effort to, uh, until we can actually persuade people not to accept money from these accounts. Uh, and there may be people who would be afraid to take it now. Uh, uh, it's it's not going to really have an impact on the value of the stolen coin, right? All right. Um, Dave, uh, uh, while we're talking hacker tactics, you had, had wanted to talk a little bit about 3ds max malware well i think 3ds max and and i guess the the important part here is that most people have never heard of it but if you've if you use autodesk software then you are usually doing something pretty important so if you're doing 3d modeling of say a new 3d printer part or even just a an engine say maybe the thruster engine that goes inside a aircraft or missile, then you're doing a lot of this kind of work with specialist software. And what I've noticed is that most people completely ignore um, con ops that are not very generic. So we're all very used to thinking about phishing and you know normal network hacking on a Windows domain or you know a Linux Trojan, something coming to your email. We're all very used to thinking about this stuff. What we're not used to thinking about is plugins that go into specialist software that are used by an important industry. And frankly, I think the legal industry is perhaps the most unprepared. But secondarily, you know, like the people you actually want to target are the ones doing the actual engine design. So I'm going to target the software that they use to do engine design. And that's exactly what you saw reported from Bitdefender last week. Some a very smooth, clean APT team did everything over a plugin to 3ds Max, which is a 3D computer graphics application. And so, you know, if you're modeling physics and you have this little physics plugin, it runs malicious scripts. It's not actually that important how the implant works. What's important is we're finally catching people who do this work and are targeting very specific verticals because that's almost better than having to do all like hitting a bunch of people in a company and then trying to find the team of engineers working on engines. I honestly, I, I just want to hit the people who are working on the engines. So I think that's something that we need to start thinking about for a lot of different industries. And, uh, and you're you right know. about lawyers. Uh, well, the, 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 it is one of my great frustrations uh, dealing with uh, our IT systems are um, the, the way in which uh, people who are selling software 
take a capability that is widely available uh, uh, from others and add like three tweaks that would appeal to law firms and yep. suddenly have taken over the law firm market. And everybody just calls up uh, the uh, the next biggest firm and says, what do you think? This is a, and, and they, they just want to do what the biggest firms are doing without regard to whether uh, b- more broadly uh, reviewed, it would turn out not to be the most secure. I, I, I'm using a, uh, uh, a a Zoom substitute that, uh, um, you know, I'm sure we looked at it at one point and said, well, it's probably more secure against certain kinds of risks. Uh, uh, and they really like law firms. So let's go with that. And uh, it's, um, it, it, it's a um, video conferencing tool that uh, as far as I can tell, nobody but a few lawyers uses. And uh, the the world of law software is full of stuff like that. It's it, I mean, look at relativity, look at brain space. Some of the tools that lawyers essentially have to use to do e-discovery. And e-discovery, yeah. of course, is a collection of all the most important data in a company's network by design. So I think some of these things, if you're not thinking about them, you have to assume a hacker has thought them over and made some choices that you probably don't like. And that's what I thought was very interesting about this kind of article, because it allows people to think that there are hackers doing operations that have sort of concepts a little further beyond what we attribute to the basic, you know, APT spamware attacks. So, um, Nick, I, uh, this is a story that actually causes me a certain amount of personal pain because I know the guy, uh, but I don't think we can close off our uh, discussion without talking about the uh, Uber uh, indictment for what turns out to be pretty clearly a phony uh, a bug bounty payment. Uh, uh, and that that's not news. Uh, that's been out there for a couple of years. But the, uh, the Justice Department has now indicted the chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, uh, um, for obstruction of justice and misprision of felony. Um, a, and, you know, I, my, I feel for him because this, <laughs> this was almost just really creative lawyering, but it, it's, it, it basically slid pretty quickly down the uh, slippery slope to uh, uh, hiding data from the government and really from his management. Right. The problem, though, for the government's case is he claims, um, or at least claims through his lawyers, that uh, Uber Legal was in the loop, as well as they admit that the CEO was in the loop. So... Um, that's going to be very interesting. The other thing is, is the misprision of a felony part of this is making a lot of uh, CSO types worried because it means that what is the limit if they're mad at you? This is starting to get into crime a day territory. Well, fair enough, because this is really turning everything you say into a uh, uh, a, a, a certification um, that could be punished with felony uh, uh, charges. So uh, uh, we we used to think that that was just uh, you know a few financial statements, but now uh, 
you know, you could argue that uh, when you say something, if it isn't 100% true, you're at risk here. Uh, I don't think that's quite true because, after all, he was submitting statements to the FTC contemporaneous with, with trying to work this bug bounty. Uh, and the statements certainly had material omissions in them. Right. But the key is on those statements is those were actually before he discovered it. So it was contemporaneous, but still slightly before. Um, and the misprision of a felony in particular is the kind of thing that uh, is frankly somewhat disturbing for the CSO types um, because it means what is your duty to report um, when there's nothing you can do. So, well, so it's a ridiculous, like, it's a weird, weird thing to indict someone for that's going to have broad reaching strategic issues with the whole community. And I, I honestly, I think there had to have been a better way. Maybe this is where prosecutorial discretion is supposed to be used, where you can say, look, don't do that again, please, sir. I don't know. Oh yeah, no. There's, 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 there are a hundred ways you can get a deferred prosecution agreement, saying keep your nose clean for three years and admit that you did all these things and that you shouldn't have, and we'll let you go without uh, sending you to jail. Uh, they could say a non-prosecution agreement. They could ask for a civil judgment. This was a deliberate decision to charge this criminally to make a point. I uh, and, and and that raises the question whether that was a point that was worth making. Yeah, and if and if. I don't know that they've made the point they thought they were making in the first place, if that makes any sense. Well, it will be interesting. He he may, he certainly got the resources to fight this. And, and if I were in his shoes, I think I probably would. Uh, the, uh, um, the risk of significant jail time is probably real here, uh, given the, the economic consequences. Uh, uh, so... Um, he may well fight it. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, he's going to be uh, calling on Uber's former CEO to, uh, to testify. And he's going to raise the question, uh, you know, what did they tell you when they told you they weren't going to prosecute you? Did they tell you that uh, you would have to testify against me and blame me? Uh, and the answer is probably going to be, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and there was a lawyer who uh, worked on this, who got fired, but isn't, doesn't make much of an appearance in the indictment. Uh, uh, so yeah, I think uh, um, he may well uh, uh, fight this just in the hopes of clearing his name, and he may get a fair amount of support at the Silicon Valley. All right, very fast. Um, we we really not should not uh, uh, come back from hiatus without recognizing just how bad stuff has gotten in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, the uh, Hong Kong police have really turned themselves into a wholly owned subsidiary of Beijing and are using all of Beijing's electronic dragnet tools. Uh, uh, I, it's, uh, it's, it's going to continue to be ugly there, uh, and uh, it's hard to get out, too. So uh, yep. there's a lot of people fighting this inside uh, kind of admirably, but it's hard to believe that they're going to come out of this winners. Uh, and that's a tragedy. Uh, all right. Uh, the Pentagon has 
gone back and checked all its math and decided that, yes, Microsoft should have won and AWS should have lost the Jedi cloud contract. Uh, not a surprise. Uh, AWS will keep fighting this. I think they're going to lose. Uh, uh, but uh, um, uh, it'll take another few months for that to work through. The story that should have been covered a lot more is there's a talk that the Commerce Department is going to target SMC, which is the I think probably the second biggest chip company after TSMC. Uh, I think it's uh, SMIC. Am I wrong? SMIC. You're right. Yes, you're right. SMIC. Um, And it it may be that the Commerce Department is going to force Taiwanese chip makers basically to pick which ecosystem they're going to be part of, the uh, uh, Chinese or the American. And TSMC, I think, has more or less made its choice, but SMIC might uh, feel that that has created an opportunity for them in China and that the risk of punishment uh, in the U.S. is something that should just push them over the edge. So we'll, I think that's worth it. They don't have the capability yet. And, and, and it's it's amazing to look at this. They don't have the ability to make chips domestically anywhere near what you know the Japanese or the Taiwanese uh, or the Koreans can do. And it's it's a huge amount of leverage that we've managed to put forth in a very short period of time. Like this time last year, you weren't hearing this kind of activity. I think this is a no. huge story. I think this this um, is a big deal. I I think in the long run, I mean, it, it, this is a problem that can be solved with enough money. Uh, and the Chinese have indicated that they're going to provide enough money. Uh, uh, so I, I'm guessing that five years from now, there's going to be a perfectly capable chip manufacturing uh, 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 ecosystem inside China. It will be. You know, uneconomic, uh, but it will. But it doesn't work have to well be. enough. Yeah, and exactly. I think that the downside of export controls is they're they're in some sense countered by cyber espionage, and so yes. I think that's that's going to be the. It's a fascinating experiment that we're actually living through right now because this is really hurting China in a way that they don't have a way around. Yep, and that's which is why they think they ought to have an export control law too, in the hopes that they can uh, get a little bit of damage back. Uh, um, Hong Kong uh, is not going to be the terminus for uh, Facebook and Google uh, underwater cable. They've given up uh, after uh, Team Telecom, which is the U.S. government uh, uh, agency, said we don't think it should go to Hong Kong because we think that Hong Kong is basically being taken over by the Chinese government, uh, which is uh, not uh, at all surprising. Uh, the the fight over Section 230 has moved to the FCC. Um, they're, they're taking comments, I think, for about another week or two uh, a, over whether they should exercise their regulatory authority to impose transparency requirements mainly on the big uh, social media platforms uh, using FCC regulatory authority. And I, I thought, it, you know, everybody said, oh, that's preposterous. They don't have legal authority. They actually do. I think their, their, their legal authority is clearer than anybody at EFF wants it to be. Um, and I noticed that AT&T just filed uh, uh, comments saying, yeah, really, we think uh, web platform moderation really does need some discipline, which is, of course, you know, they must have enjoyed writing that. They probably dug out the briefs that were filed against them in net neutrality and just changed all the names <laughs> and submitted it. Uh, uh, and um, uh, 
DHS, uh, God bless them, has announced that uh, every U.S. agency has got to have a vulnerability disclosure policy by March of 2021. Uh, we saw this coming a, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. Uh, this is not that they have to offer bug bounties, but they have to be kind of bug bounty capable in the sense that they are able to collect and respond to uh, uh, to. Uh, bugs that people send them, which is 90% and the, of the cost of having a bug bounty program, is my guess. Uh, uh, so that's probably all to the good. Agreed. And that is, that is episode 327. Nick Weaver, David Chris, David Attell, thank you for joining me. This has been terrific. That's uh, uh, the end of the Cyber Podcast episode 327, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, rate the show. I keep saying this. You just keep not doing it. Come on. There are no, <laughs> there have been no ratings in the last 60 days. So please go there. Uh, and rate the show uh, you know you know uh, listen if i if i were npr dave i tell would would do five minutes on why this is such a valuable thing that people should be supporting and they rely on community support and the phones aren't <laughs> ringing i say uh, but no we're not going to do that just i'm just going to nag you one time at the end of the show and then please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security privacy and government 